Hey, Peter. Hey, Brady. Hey, Nicola. Hello. This is Nicola Nixon and Peter Yates. They're from the Asia Foundation and they're global experts on governance. And this is where we got to the crux of the debate around practical democracy promotion on the ground in the Indo-Pacific. What does it look like for democracy to deliver in a region like Asia where it needs to because it's not the status quo um, and sort of matching up with expectations with the ability for democratic governments? From the Development Intelligence Lab, I'm Bridie Rice and this is The Readout. In this series, we're taking you behind the scenes of our latest project on democracy. I'm asking different experts one question. What will Biden's summit mean for the Indo-Pacific? This is episode four, a practitioner perspective. When we say democracy in practice, what do we mean? Because you go from the, you're either for or against democracy, which is the US perspective, and then the, you're, you're not understanding us, the Asian values perspective. Nicola, like most experts I'm speaking to, is saying that being either for democracy or against democracy is, is too simplistic. And more importantly, it doesn't get to the practicalities of day-to-day life for people in the countries where donors are working. So how should we think about democracy promotion? Nicholas suggests starting a layer down and seeing what elements of democratic principles are important to the people it serves. Here she is talking me through it. One way to do that would be to look at the way that, because you get anywhere between five and eight principles, basic principles of democracy that sit under the term, and it's anywhere between five and eight, depending on what sites and what you know, lineage you're looking at. Nicola is talking about principles that most democracies share, things like economic freedom, political tolerance, free elections, and the participation of citizens. And then the Pew Centre had actually done research on which of those principles are more important in different countries. And that sort of takes you to a level which then nuances the idea of whether you support democracy or not, but more along the lines of different things are more important to different places. So equity might be more important in some places. Individual human rights is more important in some places. Participation, etc. And then you can start to go to a more nuanced version of, of how you support democracy in a particular context in ways that might have uh, traction. And that don't say that it's Asian values is different, are different from US values, but in fact, you know, Japanese values might sort of align a little bit more with Korean. We were getting to the crux of the idea that donor programs supporting democracy in the region will look very different in different countries. But we also needed to address the elephant in the room. Can democracies deliver for their people? Can democratic state administer to the people that's meant to serve effectively or not? Yeah. And there's, there's so many examples, China currently, but also all the Asian tigers that, that built a competent state without democratic <laughs> credentials based on the ability to provide economic well-being for, mm-hmm. for their people. The Alliance of Democracy have a really good global survey that shows, particularly across the Asian countries, the, the, the support for democracy is still there. So we haven't lost that yet. But you know that if it's not delivering, then it, it will and, and just won't hold up against what is a growing tide of a liberalism anyway. 
It's this point that is leading many governance analysts I'm speaking to, to see democracy support as going to the heart of a state's ability to deliver for its people, to the heart of what Serena spoke about, getting citizens to demand more of their leaders. So how does this sort of donor support roll out in the region? There's a different level of sensitivities and discussion around the notion of democracy in Australia. It's actually gone out of fashion in Australia over the last couple of decades, uh, in part due to the proximity to many of the countries in the Indo-Pacific where it doesn't go down well. When Nicola says democracy has gone out of fashion for Australia, she's referring to the fact that you don't see the term democracy front and centre of our development discussions. And a challenge that donors like Australia face is the fear that our governance programs, for example, efforts to strengthen civil society, empower journalists or reduce corruption overseas, can be seen as somehow intervening in the sovereign affairs of another country. But for practitioners on the ground, what I've been hearing in my conversations is that while Australia is smart to be cautious, we don't need to be screeching democracy from the rooftops, for example. Nor should we be shying away from the critical work of governance support. Here's Peter. So, you know, for anyone who says, you know, that puts forward that argument that we don't want to be seen to be intervening in sovereign affairs, I think what what we say is that you're right, this, but what we're talking about is nothing more than how diplomacy already practices. So we're not talking about changing the norms of how countries engage with each other diplomatically or developmentally, um, but it's about putting forward a, a nuanced thing. And no one's actually, anyone who's putting forward that idea of, well, this is actually a different ballpark of programming areas and therefore we can't touch it, is that when they put that forward, in this case, it's a red herring more so than anything else. Peter's referring to the fact that Australia can support the principles of democratic governance we believe in. Strong media, robust debate, accountable governments in the Indo-Pacific. In fact, Australia already does this. Development programs have walked this fine line for decades. But critics suggest our appetite for supporting robust democratic debate like this pales in comparison to support provided by our US and EU contemporaries. Back to Peter, explaining what democracy support and governance looks like in practice. We we spend much more time on governance programming that might touch on democratic processes and engage with democratic processes, but are much about a much broader scope than, than just democratic process and political participation. This was all very well principled, but I wanted to know more. So we called Peter back. In addition to being on song with Serena and John's views that development program for democracy should be inclusive, long-term, locally led. Peter painted a picture of some great programs underway. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the MAMBU program, which supports over 100 local organisations to collaborate with Indonesian government on improved access to services for women, is a really nice example. I hear this program mentioned again and again wherever I go. It's a long-standing Australian-funded program in Indonesia. It's a great example of a low-cost way for donors to improve policies, not by writing them, but by supporting organisations to engage government locally. From the Age Foundation itself, a long-term program that we've had in the Philippines, 
has been the Coalitions for Change program, which is about encouraging civil society actors to work entrepreneurially with government and putting together these small influential coalitions to achieve very specific targeted policy reform efforts. This is another hallmark program. It sounds esoteric to your average international affairs professional, but it's super logical. Imagine in Australia, the government is making health policies, but the doctors, nurses and epidemiologists are too busy to help shape it. You'll end up with an unworkable policy, right? This program in the Philippines helps people in the know engage and shape government policy reform so that it generates better outcomes for citizens. And we've had a lot of success with that across a whole area of thematic policies um, for, for over a decade now. Um, if you were thinking about other projects, there's a great, the Fiji Women's Fund, which is now actually an independent entity mobilising funds for women's rights organisations um, that started off as a, as a DFAT funded program and has transformed and evolved into an independent entity, which is another really nice example of a sustainable program in the region. So with the first Democracy Summit done and dusted, what is next for practitioners in this space? What do they want to see and what are they watching for from donors? Thinking big picture, Nicola told me about some great ideas coming out of the summit for states and communities in the Indo-Pacific. We also drew on thinking by Ben Scott in this recent paper on minilateralism and the idea of clustering countries around the responses to the Democracy Summit. And where he's taken that to cluster governments, you might also then cluster civic spaces around similar ideals or similar principles that are informing the practices within civic space, and then build coalitions between different groupings. Closer to home, Australia can start investing more seriously in regional civil society. We aren't arguing that we, Australia should be jumping on the democracy promotion bag wagon, but we are arguing that the Australian government should take seriously some core institutions that are critical in any country for healthy democracy and civil society being and civic space being one of them, essentially. The facts speak plainly here, with less Australian aid program funds being directed towards civic space than most other donors, and paling in comparison to the recent US announcement of a target of 30% of USAID funding being directed towards local actors. But the upcoming election and new development strategy could be a great opportunity. So we know the government's current aid strategy is articulated through the Partnerships for Recovery strategy, um, but we know that that's time-bound as well. And so the government is working on a new strategy and they're going to be consulting on that soon. I think that the timeline of that will be determined both by, obviously, the election next year and whether there's any change of government there, but also COVID and how dominant COVID um, continues to be in the region and whether it is possible to design a strategy that's about the focus on the recovery and the bigger picture or whether we continue to be dealing with COVID as an acute kind of issue. Um, But in whatever that looks like, that next age strategy looks like, I think there's no doubt that this larger theme of um, democracy in the region, how Australia responds to it, will play a larger role in shaping um, our engagement and what that development strategy looks like. So I think it's really important that this question of how Australia engages not only with government but with civil society, the role, the important role that civil society plays in strengthening governance institutions and also in pushing back against 
you know, illiberal trends will be really important um, and something that should certainly play, you know, have a prominent place when it comes to that new age strategy whenever it comes into being. That's all from Nicola and Peter in this episode of The Readout. Make sure you have a read of their essay in our publication of Develop, where they expand on what you've heard here. You'll find the essay on our website and linked in the show notes. In the next episode, we're going to zoom out from Australia and take a look at what the United States does on democracy promotion. I'll be speaking with Blake Crystal, USAID's newly appointed and first ever representative here in Australia. I mean, the Summit for Democracy is an amazing thing. We have world leaders together, there's commitments, and and I'm really happy about it as a development professional. You know, at the end of the day, that needs to translate into a concrete impact where people can see that, that, that the government can respond to their needs. This show is produced by Madeline Flint with production support from Connie Aegis, Isabel Coleman and Rachel Mason-Nunn. The music is by Viljami Metto and it's hosted by me, Bridie Rice. Special thanks in this episode to Nicola Nixon, Peter Yates and Miranda Lucas. Make sure you head to devintelligencelab.com to read our essay series publication of Develop, featuring many of the people you meet on this show. Subscribe to The Readout wherever you get your podcasts and you can keep in touch with us by heading to devintelligencelab.com and signing up for alerts.